someone comes to you and tells you that something is happening later that day, you have two choices. You can just sort of fill time until the thing that you've been promised happens, or you can actively prepare for it. Maybe it's a camping trip. Maybe your parents say to you, hey, we're going to go camping later today. What are the two options? You could read a book, you could watch TV, you could just sort of wait around until the time comes, okay, now we're going to get in the car, or you can go find your sleeping bag, pack some bug spray, whatever other things you might need. Take active steps to be prepared for the thing that was going to happen. Life has a typical pattern for most of us. We're born. We go through school for 12 years or sometimes longer. We usually find a job. Many of us get married, have family, and then sooner or later all of us grow older. These are the normal events, circumstances, points of life. Are you preparing for each of those stages in life, or are you just filling time until they happen? In our passage this morning in Acts 1, the disciples knew exactly what was going to be next. Jesus had said, wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit. He said this in chapter 1 and verse 4. Now, we don't know specifically what's next in our lives necessarily. We know the broad outlines, perhaps, typically of what would happen. But we can ask ourselves the same question that the disciples needed to ask themselves, which is, what am I going to do while I'm waiting? How am I waiting for the next thing to happen? And while much of this passage was a one-time event that can't be repeated, I think there are still valuable lessons that we can learn as we look at the second half of Acts 1. And I think that we can see this simple truth from this section, which is to get ready while you wait. There are two main ways that I think that we can get ready. The first is in verses 12 through 14, and this is to keep knowing God. We need to first of all remember that God is there even when we can't see him. Look at verse uh, 9. After he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him up out of their sight. So the disciples had seen Jesus, but Jesus was no longer with them. Did that mean that Jesus was not there, was not present, was not still working? No, he was certainly still at work in and among them. For us, we have never seen Jesus face to face like the apostles had. And yet for us, the same truth is to be remembered that Jesus is real. Whether we do not see him now or whether we have never seen him, he is real. He is alive. He is working in the world today. And so remember that God is there even when you can't see him. And in light of that, do what God has said. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem. So what did Jesus say in chapter 1 and verse 4? Don't leave Jerusalem. And this is a discussion they're having just outside the city. Uh, it says a Sabbath day's journey away, something like two-thirds of a mile, a fairly short distance. So they come back inside the city. They're doing what God had told them to do. They're waiting for the coming of the promised Holy Spirit. And I think it's important for us to realize that if we're not obeying God, if we're not doing what he said, the next step, the next stage of our lives is not going to come easily. It's going to be difficult for us because we're not ready for it. And so the uh, apostles went back to where God had told them to go. 
Now, we don't have direct revelation that says, go to Jerusalem, go to this place, go to that place. But we certainly have text in Scripture where Jesus has said, do this. We have principles of, here's what this passage said to God's people in the early church. We can follow their example and follow through the truths that they followed and apply them to our lives today. And so scripture guides us in the same way that the word of God guided the apostles in these early days. And then certainly we can talk to God. So not only be aware that God is there, not only obey what God has said, but speak to God in prayer. We see this in verse 14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Notice that word devoting or devoted. This is significant because it wasn't something that was an afterthought. It was something that was a commitment, a priority for them in their lives. When you say someone is devoted to something, you don't think of someone who does it half-heartedly, someone who does it just a little bit, someone who does it only when they have to do it. This was something that was a characteristic of their lives. They were, as God's people are described throughout the Bible, those who call on the name of the Lord. And so that's important for us to remember because it's easy for us to think that if I come to church, that makes me a good Christian. If I read my Bible, that makes me a good Christian. But in reality, knowing facts, performing different rituals, whatever they might be, are empty without a relationship to God. And our relationship to God is strengthened by us praying to God, communicating with Him, reflecting on the truth that He has spoken to us in His Word. Not only were they devoted, but this was something that they were doing continually. Again, it's not something that they just did occasionally. Our tendency tends to be that we come to God in the same way that we came to our parents as kids, when we were hungry, which for some kids is all the time. Uh, but generally for us in prayer, we don't do it all the time. We come to God when we say, God, I really want this thing. God, I don't know what's going on in this circumstance. God, I need help in some way. We can go throughout a good portion of our week without potentially acknowledging God as we should, and then something comes up and it, it stops our attention and we say, oh, I should be praying. But in this passage, it says they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. I think that this is a valuable lesson for us to be reminded of as well. And it doesn't mean all of the time you're sort of talking under your breath, praying to God, but it means that you're always ready to pray. You wake up in the morning, you say it's a nice, cool morning, a beautiful day that God has given. Thank Him for it. Something comes up, you don't know how to respond to it. Yes, ask God for help and for wisdom. But do it all throughout the day, not just occasionally. And then it says, these with all, one, all with one mind. There's a unity that characterized this early gathering of believers as they were in Jerusalem waiting for the Holy Spirit. And what was the basis of that unity? The basis of that unity wasn't that they were all men. Because look at the end of verse 14 along with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. It wasn't that they all had the same background. Some of them had been tax collectors, some of them had been fishermen, some of them had been involved perhaps in, in political events. There was a variety of backgrounds of the apostles, a variety of backgrounds of those who were gathered 
at this time praying together. What was the thing that unified them? What was the thing that they were all with one mind uh, gathered uh, around? It was around the person of Jesus Christ and potentially in context around the specific promise that he had made. So what was it that they were praying about? I'm sure at least part of their prayer was, Lord, when will you send your spirit? We want to see you fulfill that promise. But certainly the basis of their unity was not an artificial thing. It wasn't according to normal human criteria. It was according to the fact that they knew Jesus, they were belonged to Jesus, and they were following him together. Not only talking to God in prayer, but also gathering with God's people. Maintaining a relationship with God is not just knowing who he is. It's not just obeying what he said. It's not just talking to him in prayer, but it's also being with his people. We see this in both verses 13 and 14. We see the 11 at the end of verse 13. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas of James. And so we see here that the 11 apostles who are still alive, Judas having committed suicide at this point, and we'll talk about that in a moment, these 11 were gathered together. Not only the 11, but also, it says, the women that follow Jesus, Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. I think it's interesting to note that Mary the mother of Jesus felt like she needed to be gathered with God's people, spending time with them in prayer which argues against certain beliefs in our day that Mary was somehow unique, holy, didn't need a particular relationship with God, that she's somehow up here and we're down here. Mary was a woman like any other woman. She was a sinner. She needed fellowship with God's people to encourage her, to help her, just like all the rest of us do. Unless we skip over where it says his brothers... It's significant that Jesus' brothers wanted nothing to do with him during his earthly ministry. In John 7, 3, they basically said this, Go be a prophet somewhere else. If you want to be a good prophet, go down to Jerusalem. That's where all the people are going to notice you, and you're going to make a name for yourself as a prophet. Don't come here. We don't want you here. What happened? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 says, Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection. Somewhere in that time period, between the time when James and the other brothers, half-brothers of Jesus, said, go be a prophet somewhere else, we don't want to hear your message, God transformed their thinking, their understanding, their relationship with them, and they started to follow the one that they had rejected. We see this develop even further because by Acts 15, James is noted as a leader in the church of Jerusalem. And so when we see that these all are gathered together, these are people who were sinners and had been converted and recognized that they needed to be in the fellowship of God's people as they waited for God's promise to be fulfilled. And so I think a very clear application for us is, do we gather? Do we think that we don't need this fellowship in some way? It's easy for us in our day in our particular country to have a sort of self-sufficient attitude. I can do this on my own. I don't need other people. Whether that be difficulties that we face in life, whether that be spiritual struggles against sin, whatever it is, we can sort of adopt an attitude that says, I don't need other people. I can handle this on my own. And this 
particular account served as a reminder that in the context of the loss of Christ who had been taken up from them into heaven, the uncertainty about when God's promise would be fulfilled, the question of whether there's going to be continued opposition by the religious leaders against them for following Christ, they needed one another, and so do we. So how do you get ready? Continue the relationship that you already have with God. While you're waiting for that next stage in life, in their case, while they're waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled, continue your relationship with God. It's not something where you just sort of stand idly by and just sort of expect things to fall into place. You have to actively work at continuing to know God, at growing in your relationship with Him. And that starts with acknowledging that He's real, because if you don't even accept that, how can you possibly go through all of these other things? You have to first acknowledge that God is real. But it's not enough just to say, well, God is real, because it says in James that even the demons acknowledge that God is real. They know the truth. They know that God exists. They just don't want to do what he says. But we can't do what he says on our own. And so we have to turn from our sins and turn to Christ, the same Christ that these early believers trusted in, in order to have a right relationship with God. And then comes the obeying the praying, the gathering. If you reverse the order on all those sorts of things, then you're just performing an empty ritual that has no spiritual life in it. How do you prepare for what's coming next by building your relationship with God? But then in the larger section of this passage this morning, you need to take the next step. What is the next step? Well, I think it's important to note that for them, the next step was filtered through the idea of what does Scripture say. We see this in verse 15, specifically uh, flowing into verse 16, that Peter is going to apply Old Testament Scripture to New Testament situations. There's 120 people gathered, we see in verse 15. This is the group that would become the early church to which the 3,000 would quickly be added and then many more over the next few chapters here of Acts. But there's 120 people here, the 11 apostles, and probably what was left of those who continue to follow Christ even after all of the events of the crucifixion. What does Peter say? Peter says, The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. And then he, he says, He acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, falling headlong. He burst in the middle, his intestines gushed out, and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, the field of blood. A gruesome picture of what happened to Judas. Why does Peter bring it up? Peter brings it up to make this point. Judas' death and his betrayal, for that matter, did not take God by surprise and were, in fact, a righteous judgment of God upon him for his wickedness. To illustrate this point, he quotes two sections from Psalms. We see that first in verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. This is from Psalm 69. And the context of Psalm 69 
is that David is praying what we might call an imprecatory prayer against his enemies. This is an idea that is not a popular one in our day. We talked about it briefly on Wednesday night about this idea of hating the sin but loving the sinner. What is our attitude towards the, supposed to be towards sin? What is God's attitude towards sin and towards sinful people? In our case, because our knowledge is limited and our motives are not always pure, I think we have to be cautious in the way that we approach these truths. And yet, David recognized that though he himself was imperfect, that there were people who were actively opposing God and behaving wickedly, and it was, in fact, appropriate for him to pray God's judgment on those people who were opposing God's purpose. In that context, David prays, uh, particularly in the middle section of the, uh, uh, toward the end of this psalm, may their table before them become a snare. When they're in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see. Make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them. May your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. And they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity. May they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life. And may they not be recorded with the righteous. These are serious and severe words. But in the context of the specific sin that Judas had committed, all of the people of Israel were guilty for rejecting their Messiah. But Judas even more so because he was the specific instrument or agent by which the betrayal was accomplished. And so Peter is saying in the same way that David prayed this prayer against his enemies, Judas deserved the judgment that God has brought upon him. I think it's important to consider in what sense is it that he says that this came about? In what sense was it uh, fulfilled when he says the scripture had to be fulfilled? I think it's important for us to note that the word fulfilled is not always used in the sense of a specific prophecy. In other words, this was stated in the Old Testament, here's where it was fulfilled in the New Testament. The reason that that's important is, David was not specifically praying this toward Judas. So if we take it as a prophecy in the sense of specific statement in the Old Testament, specific statement in the New Testament, like Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, if we take it in that sense, then that leaves us at the point of we're basically redefining David's words to fit a particular situation. There are other examples that we don't have time to go into now, but there are a number of examples in the New Testament and even in the writings of Luke specifically in which he uses this word that is translated here, fulfilled, in a sense, to fill up, to accomplish, those sorts of ideas that's not specifically a prophetic sense, but that does draw a parallel, a connection between two things. So what is Peter saying? Peter is saying, in the same way that David's enemies 
deserved God's judgment. Judas deserves God, deserved God's judgment, which has come upon him. He's going to use similar language in verse, in the second half of verse 20 when it says, Let another man take his office. And this is a citation from Psalm 109 and verse 8. And again, we have another of these examples of a psalm where David is praying for God's judgment on his enemies. Appoint a wicked man over him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children wander about and beg and let them seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. Let the creditor seize all that he has, and let strangers plunder the product of his labor. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, nor any to be gracious to his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off in the following generation. Let their name be blotted out. Again, severe words that David spoke against his enemies. In what sense is Peter using these words? He's saying if God's judgment against this person who has behaved wickedly is fulfilled... Another one's going to take his place because God will have brought him to death, to judgment, to punishment. And so we look at this and we say, Peter is not using these quotes from Psalms in a way that redefines prophecy. He's not using them in a sort of creative interpretation that he's made up of how to use the Bible. He is drawing an analogy between the circumstances that David described and the specific instance of Judas who ironically, was in fact an attack against David in the sense that Christ is the fulfillment of the Davidic line of kings. And so tying all of those ideas together, David was opposed by enemies, called down God's judgment on them. Christ himself, the ultimate descendant of David, was betrayed by Judas, and Peter says, he of all people is one whom God should answer an imprecatory psalm against and has done so and so what's his conclusion based on these things his conclusion was that they needed to choose someone to replace Judas before we get into that I think that this illustrates for us an important parallel which is that we have to apply scripture to our situations but I think we have to recognize that the way in which we apply scripture to the situations that we face in life should not be something where we just sort of bind, blindly grab verses and claim them for ourselves without considering the way in which they're used. In other words, if a particular passage uses a phrase in a particular way, we can't change it to make it fit our own purposes. If a particular promise is given to a specific group of people in the Old Testament, for example, we can't grab that promise and say that promise is for me. So God promised the Israelites land. God, you're going to give me land. Why? Because the promise was for them. In the same way, we can't take the statements that are used in various places by David and others and change the meaning of them to apply them to our lives. What we can do is to apply them, once we have properly understood what their meaning is as they were written, we can then apply them to our situation in a similar way that Peter applied David's circumstance to Christ and to the person of Judas. And how do we do this? I think it requires wisdom. 
I think it requires an acknowledgement that we're not speaking with apostolic authority, and so to the extent that a particular phrase is less clear to us in its original meaning, we have to be more hesitant about how we apply it to our specific situations. That doesn't mean that the Bible has no value for us today. The Bible has value, for example, in illustrating what God is like. When God said to the Israelites, be holy because I am holy, what do we learn about God? God is holy. Peter rightly applied it to God's people in the New Testament because the same God who was holy then was the same God that was holy, uh, holy at that later point when Peter's writing to the church. God wanted the people of Israel to be holy. God wants his people today to be holy because that's a function of God's character. You take other examples of things that God said to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Take, for example, the command that they were supposed to build a uh, in some translations, it's a parapet or a fence or a low wall around the roof of their house. What do you do if you live in a place where you don't have a flat roof? How do you apply that text to your situation? A potential path to understanding how to apply that to your situation would be to say, what was it that God was saying by that? And this is a challenge because we don't want to read into what God has said, our own ideas, but I think in the context of that specific verse, we can see that God was concerned about protecting his people from being guilty of other people's death. If you took no steps to prevent someone from falling off your roof and then they fell off, you were in part responsible for their death. That was part of the context. And a concern for the well-being of others, not just a, I don't want to be guilty if something bad happens, I don't want to get sued in our context, but also a genuine love and concern for what would be best for other people. Bring that to our circumstance. What does that look like today? A potential application would be put salt on your sidewalk when it starts snowing here in a few months. Why? Because I'm concerned about the well-being of the people who are walking down my street. And legitimately, I'm also concerned that there's not a, a reasonable guilt that can be pointed at me if someone harms themselves. Is that the meaning of that passage in the Old Testament? No, but is it a legitimate application? I think it is potentially a legitimate application. And so I say all that, that, that extended aside to illustrate this point, Peter is not doing violence to the meaning of the Old Testament text. Peter is not changing the meaning of words to fit his purpose. Peter's instead trying to say, here's a circumstance in the Old Testament that parallels what took place in the life and ministry of Christ and what action should we take in connection with it. And he's essentially saying, God has judged this person. Another person's going to have to take his place because his place has been emptied in part as part of God's judgment. So what do they do? They took the next step. They tried to use scripture as the basis of it, and then they took action based on their understanding of scripture. So the disciples choose someone to replace Judas. There are at least two qualifications. We see in verse 21, of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must be a witness with us of his resurrection. So what's he saying? They have to be someone who's been with us from the beginning 
and they have to be someone who's going to be a witness. Why was that important? Because Acts 1 and verse 8 says that they would be witnesses of all of these things, starting in Jerusalem, spreading outward from there. So the person had to be someone who knew and could speak confidently as an eyewitness about the things that they were speaking about, and someone who would actually do this task. Notice that there are two men, at least, who are qualified, verse 23. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And we look at this, and this is interesting, because sometimes we think about the concept of God's will, God's purpose, and we think there's only ever one right option. But it says here that there were two men. And it wasn't that one of them was a bad option, because they said, both of these are qualified. They wouldn't have put them forth unless they were both qualified. So how did they decide between them? They prayed, verse 24, and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And what did they do? Verse 26, They drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. This raises an interesting question for us. What does it mean that they cast lots? The different ways that they would have cast lots, using stones, using sticks, those sorts of things, that rubs us the wrong way. Who's going to be the twelfth apostle to fill Judas' spot? They flipped a coin. That's the sense that we get from looking at the verse, right? So what's the difference between the, us flipping a coin today and what they were doing and the significance of it? Well, for one thing, God was working specifically and clearly in the early church. For another, Proverbs 16.33 says this, The casting of the lot is into the lap, but the falling of it is, is according to the Lord, or something along those lines. The, the idea is this, God can control even what appears to us to be random chance to accomplish his purpose. Which raises another question. Is this how we make decisions today? No. The way that we make decisions today, having a completed Bible, having uh, the, the point that we are in church history, we have God's word finished, completed, sufficient for all that we need to know for life and godliness. So we don't go out and say, God, should I take this job or that job? Yep. Oh, no. That's not how we approach it. We look at what God has said. And again, are you going to find a verse that says, go work for Ford, go work for Honda? Some people would say that's an automatic no. Go work for whatever place. You're not going to find a verse that tells you, go work at this specific place. What are you going to find? Verses that say, you should work. Verses that say, you should provide for your family verses that say, here's all the other responsibilities that you have as a husband or a wife, as a father or a mother, as a church member. So the decision that you make can't be in conflict with all those truths of Scripture. Is God going to say, go work at this place? No. But has he given you truth to make a wise decision? Yes. Could there potentially be more than one legitimate option? Yes. Having made that decision... Is that God's will? It's not as though God's will is decided after the fact, after we've made decisions.
But God is also not surprised by the decisions that we make either. And so that's the, the fascinating tension of this intersection between what God has said and what God is doing and what we do individually and what God is doing to accomplish his plan in the world as a whole. Another question that I think is certainly raised by this passage is, should the apostles have done this? Maybe it's not a question you've ever thought about, but was Matthias supposed to be the twelfth apostle? Or was it supposed to be Paul? What are reasons that we might say that, yes, Matthias should have been the twelfth apostle? Well, the decision was based on Peter's leadership. It wasn't just somebody from the outside coming in and saying, here's what you guys should do. It was the apostles as a group gathered and making this decision. It was based on scripture and on prayer. Peter took an Old Testament passage, applied it to this specific situation, and, and, and tried to make a wise decision based on that. And when they came to the actual making of this decision, they asked for God's help in prayer. In contrast to, for example, in the Old Testament, remember the Gibeonites come in, they say, will you be kind to us? And the people say, sure. They don't even bother to consult God on the matter. That would be a difference. Matthias is included with the 11 in Acts 2.14 and in chapter 6 and verse 2. Peter, along with the 11, Paul's not on the scene at this point, so it has to be referring to Matthias as part of the rest of that group of 11. Finally, Luke, the narrator, says nothing bad about the choosing of Matthias. And one would expect that potentially he would say something negative if this was not something that they were supposed to have done. Again, that's somewhat of a weak argument, but it's something to consider. Others would argue and say, well, no, he shouldn't have been considered the twelfth apostle. What would be the reasons that they would give? The Spirit had not yet come. The Spirit's going to come in Acts 2, so perhaps they were acting outside of the authority that God had granted to them in making this decision. Unlike the command to wait in Jerusalem, they didn't have a specific command from God to choose a twelfth apostle. Thirdly, Jesus chose the other apostles and would choose Paul in Acts 9, whereas this seems to be an action that the apostles took upon themselves. Also, if it's such a big deal, this choosing of him, and, and this section is given an extended portion of uh, Luke's account here in this first chapter of Acts, why isn't he mentioned in the rest of the book? although I would also note that most of the apostles aren't mentioned in the rest of the book. And then finally, what was their motivation? Did they want 12 apostles because Jesus had said that there would be 12 apostles ruling on 12 thrones, so they thought if we fill up the number faster, God's kingdom will come faster and will be exalted faster? It certainly wouldn't be inconsistent with the way that they had behaved at several places in the gospel to think about that potentially being their motivation although clearly that would be a speculation to assume for sure that it was. I think that Luke doesn't resolve the question for us for this reason. In the book of Acts, we are going to see God the Holy Spirit carrying out the building of the church, despite of, including, and along with the actions of individual people. What do I mean by that? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin are going to constantly oppose the gospel. And the gospel will prevail anyway. God's people are sometimes going to sin. Ananias and Sapphira comes to mind. And the church grows anyway. 
Persecution will come in, Saul and other people, and the church grows anyway. All of these different factors come in and oppose God's purpose, and God's purpose transcends and overcomes them all. So in a sense, Luke doesn't have to resolve for us the question of, did the apostles make the right decision because God's purpose is accomplished in and through these things regardless? Does that excuse us from making wise choices? Does that mean that it didn't matter? No. But I think that that's part of the reason that that question is not answered for us here. I think the thing that we need to focus on is that the apostles were focused on taking the next step to prepare for Jesus' return. Jesus has said, you will be my witnesses. And they felt that it was necessary to have a twelfth apostle to be a witness alongside them so that the twelve of them could go out as Jesus' representatives taking the gospel to the twelve tribes of Israel. How do we apply this then to our lives? Our next step is not to choose a certain number of people. That's not our context. That's not our situation. Our next step is to prepare for the thing that God has next for us in life. Perhaps it's a job. Going back to how I started this morning. I need a job. All right, I'm just going to wait around until somebody asks me to come work for them. Or I'm going to practice diligence, honesty, obedience, look at the passages that talk about the relationship between slaves and masters, because even though that's not our context today, there are principles there about the relationship between employees and employers. I'm going to actively look for work. I'm going to diligently obey God as I wait for that thing. In the same way that the apostles were trying to use scripture in their situation and trying to take the next step to be ready for what God had for them, we should do that when it comes to the subject of work. Perhaps it's getting married. There's a lot of, of emphasis in our day on, on finding the right one, on finding uh, your soulmate, on all of these sorts of things. What does the Bible actually teach about marriage? It says a lot more about the sort of person you're supposed to be than about the sort of person who is the perfect match for you. And going back to that subject of God's will, once you have committed to that person, all other options are, are excluded, right? As long as that relationship is in place, other options are excluded. And so for those of you who might be thinking about the subject of getting married down the line, and some of you are certainly young enough that you're not thinking about that yet, you need to focus less on finding the one, on finding a romantic picture of a, of a perfect wedding and everything goes exactly the way that you want and focus on being the right sort of person that God wants you to be so that when God brings someone across your path and you marry that person you honor God in that marriage what about having kids I don't know how many copies of what to expect when you're expecting I've seen it used bookstores not a bad book those recommendations change constantly. Wrap your kids' arms up tight. Let them flail about in the bed. It changes between our two kids. They're only two years apart. They had already changed the recommendation about what you're supposed to do about wrapping babies up at night. What does that tell us? They don't know what they're doing. And 
The thing that should guide us as parents, being a good parent, is less about knowing the latest trends in parenting and much more about are you going to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? What about aging? The attitude of our society toward aging is avoid it. Put it off as long as possible. Pretend it's not happening. All of these sorts of things. What does the Bible say about it? Look at it as an opportunity. Hopefully you've learned something from the scriptures and from life experiences that you can encourage those who are younger in the context of the church with those things. That's what it says in Titus 2, right? So look at that as an opportunity. Look at it as the fact that in the inevitable progress of life, you are getting closer to being in God's presence. Rejoice in those things. But get ready for that by making sure that you're not just old, but you're also mature. And there's any number of other circumstances of life that we could say could be the next thing that God has for us. Are we getting ready for those things? Again, that's not the meaning of this text, but I think it is a legitimate application of it. The disciples were getting ready for the Spirit to come. They maintained their relationship with God. They took the next step to prepare. Are you maintaining your relationship with God? Are you taking the next step to prepare for what God has for you? Get ready while you wait. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word together. There's certainly the challenge of looking at what is at one level a historical account and trying to figure out what the connection is between what you said then, what was described there, and our specific circumstances today. Lord, help us to examine your truth, to consider what it is that you would have us to do that would be consistent with the principles of Scripture, that would be honoring to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.